Today we're going to be in Matthew 27. And we saw the end of the last chapter. What was in there, we saw Christ's arrest and the disciples flee from him. And today we're going to look at the trials of Christ. But was Jesus really on trial? We'll wrap that up in the end. I'll leave that question to be answered at the end. We're also going to look at four interesting people who were associated with the trials of Christ. Judas, Herod, Barabbas, and Pontius Pilate. So let's jump in to verse 1. It says, When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now, Luke tells us a little bit more. For those of you who don't come regularly, I do like to put all the Gospels together in order, in chronological order, and it's just really a neat, complete picture. It's like all the puzzle pieces fitting in, and it starts to look really neat. So Luke 22, we know that this group was the Council or the Sanhedrin. Now this group, and again, you take any historical accurate work and put it against the Bible, and you'll see that there is a parallel there. Uh, This group was the 71-member uh, consistent of Sadducees and Pharisees, religious leaders, and they had 71, an odd number, in case there was a tie. But basically they voted and they dealt with all matters concerning the Jewish people. Now, if there was an issue with the death penalty, they did not have the right to impose that, so they would have to go to the Roman government. Very interestingly enough, though, a few thousand years prior to this, in Genesis 49.10, uh, it was prophesied that the Jews would lose that ability to Uh, to preside over capital cases. And that happened at the time that Jesus was coming into the picture. So you see all these amazing prophecies, hundreds of them just start to line up like a perfect lineup. So that's what's going on here. Uh, We read in the last chapter that, remember, chapter delineations came later on. uh, So there's really a break in, in this whole trial procedure. But in the last chapter, we read that Jesus was already condemned, first by Annas, and then a second trial by Caiaphas. And now they're trying to make it look legitimate by bringing the whole council together. Well, there was a few problems with this. These leaders violated their own laws and and scripture to crucify Jesus because they really wanted him out of the picture. And a few things that they did that was contrary to the law was that they had night trials prior to this. It was two of them. They beat the prisoner, which was not allowed. Uh, They didn't impose sentence, so they shouldn't have beat him up. Uh, There was no quorum. We know that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were prominent members of the council, and they were followers of Christ. That's two that we know of, and many more, I'm sure. Uh, They would not have consented to this. There was no defense allowed, and false witnesses were called. So from here... We go from the Jewish leadership, the three trials, now to the Roman leadership. It's going to go Pontius Pilate, who was the procurator of Judea from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36. As from him, it's going to go to Herod and then back to Pontius Pilate again. So we'll follow that. And it can be, if you're just jumping into this and you've never read this before, you have a lot of questions. So I'd like to really try to give you a good background so that we jump into it. You're, you're on par with what we're doing here. Uh, verse 3. And I love to mix the, the history in with it as well. Uh, good, good, solid history from Roman historians and Jewish historians always line up with the scripture. Verse 3, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. 
Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they took counsel and brought or bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. So this is the last we hear of Judas. Uh, We know a few things about Judas. Uh, He betrayed Christ. But then he said to the leaders, hey, here he is, take him safely. So you see this flip-flopping in his emotions. Uh, He signals, says, I'm going to kiss him. But when he kisses him, it's more of an enduring embrace in a sense. So maybe, you know, we can only speculate to what was going through his mind. Um, He gives the money back, but then he goes and he kills himself. So this is a, uh, an an ax actually tells us a little bit more. It gives some detail that his, uh, I guess his, we know from medical uh, understanding that the alimentary tract starts to, the bacteria start to take over and you start to become distended. But what it says was that he must have at some point the rope broke and he hit the ground and it says his entrails gushed out of him. So a little bit of detail in there from Axe, if you're interested in that. But it was really sad because Jesus walked, I'm sorry, Judas walked with Jesus for over three years. And what did he have to show for it? You see, most of the the men of God were uh, great pillars of the early church, but not Judas. And what do we do after we've walked with the Lord for so many years? Do we have anything to show for it? That's a good question that all of us need to ask ourselves. Maybe we didn't go the way of Judas. We can always point finger at him as the worst scoundrel that ever lived. But in a way, we've walked with the Lord for years too. Some of us have walked with the Lord for decades What do we have to show for it, right? It's an important question. What do we do with God's blessings? What are we doing right now with the spiritual gifts that God has given us? So we can always take an application from what we see in Scripture and ask ourselves those same questions. Last Sunday, we spoke of how sin causes a state of confusion and tragedy. Again, his emotions were all over the map. But there is a debate among those who study the Bible, and they say, well, If you look at the New King James, it says that he was remorseful. There's another word that in other parts of the scripture says that some are repentant. So what are the differences? Well, if you go to the dictionary, there's subtle differences, but there is a difference between remorse and repentance. Uh, Judas' remorsefulness led him to despondency, but repentance leads uh, to restoration. Now, I'm going to say this because some asked the question, about him killing himself. Was he remorseful? Did he, I don't know what he said at the end of his life. Um, I don't believe, and I could be wrong, but this is my opinion. I don't think if someone takes their life that that's the unpardonable sin. I think some cry out in their last moments and they feel that they can't take it. I think that God is a very fair and merciful God. I might be proved wrong, but that's my understanding. But let me just talk about the difference between remorse and repentance. You see, I'll give you a great example here. If you get pulled over by the police, (laughs) what is so funny about that? (laughs) And it's a 25 mile an hour zone and it's a, there's children outside playing and the police pull you over and they write you a ticket. Now this is remorse. Oh, I feel like such a jerk. 
I hope my neighbors don't drive by and see, see me. I really shouldn't have done this. You know, my insurance rates are going to go up. That's remorse. Now, this is what repentance looks like. You get the ticket and you say, officer, I was doing 60 miles an hour in a 25. Wow, there was kids playing outside. I certainly wouldn't want somebody speeding down my street doing 60 in a 25. I will never do this again. I deserve the summons. You see the difference between remorse and repentance? See, the thing about repentance is it goes all the way. It goes all the way. You give it up to the Lord. You own up to it. You face the consequences, and you're fully restored. Remorse just leads to, woe is me, and, and just moping around, and, and that's what it leads to. So repentance is very important, and I think it's lacking in our society, but it needs to be practiced more. Now, um, there's no limit to repentance. Anyone can repent, no matter what they've done in their life. So if you're sitting here and you say, but you don't understand my past, and you don't know what I've done for years, repentance is always available to you. Now is not the time for confession, but you confess to the Lord privately and say, Lord, I, I just want to be restored. I'm sorry. You know, I'm going to really work on this. So repentance is a good thing for us. But Judas is the first personality out of four that I want to take a look at today. What do we learn about him? Well, he was a quitter. Right? The apostle Peter did awful things, and we read uh, last Sunday about how Peter actually called down and said he started to swear and curse. I do not know the man. He was so afraid of being found out that he was a follower of Jesus that he swore, took an oath, probably in the name of God, as the father lives, I don't know the son. How crazy was that? But what did Peter do? He faced the music. He took the penalty. He repented. He was restored. And he was one of the greatest pillars of the early church. So whatever we do, we need to try to follow more in the steps of Peter and not Judas. How many of you have heard of Jesse Ventura? He's the special forces guy who turned professional wrestler, who turned politician. He's made some pretty derogatory comments about people of faith, that maybe, maybe Christians are weak, Christians are whiners. We need to get together in groups because we can't stand on our own. And I guess my question is, do we own some of that? You know, God has called us to endure, not to be quitters. Are we quitters? We have to ask ourselves that question. You know, when I look at my life, am I, do I give up too easy or is my desire to continue to endure? Enduring is a primary concept in the scripture. What does the world see of the church? Now, you've heard the statistics that the Christian church, that the uh, divorce rate is almost as high, or again, real close, to the world, to the non-believers. What does that say about us? The world sees us quit our marriages when things get tough. The world sometimes sees us quit our pastors when we don't like what they have to say. The world sees us quit friendships when things get difficult. And the world sees us sometimes quit our jobs when the boss is a jerk. We'll get used to it. It's his place. You work for him. You know what I'm saying? So we're called to endure. You see, we have the power of the Holy Spirit at our fingertips. And many of us don't exercise that. Now, God doesn't give it to us so we can wield fireballs at people, but he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to endure. A part of God resides in us as believers. Do we tap into that, right? 
And, and that's the thing. It's just such a blessing that uh, to just be able to go in the power of the Lord and know that how am I doing this looking back? Some look at you and say, how do you do that? It can only be by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're not called to be like Judas. We're called more to be like Peter. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now at some point, I'm just going to, Turn to John 18, if you'd like to go there with me. John 18, starting with verse 28. At some point, a little bit more of a discussion is ensued. He doesn't answer, he doesn't defend himself, but he does have a discussion with Pilate at some point. And I'm going to actually start with verse 29. It says, Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. So you can see the tension between the Jewish leadership and Pilate, and I'm going to cover that a little bit later in the message. Then Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Then the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying of what death he would die. Now this is fascinating, and don't miss it, because uh, we know in the scripture that probably a thousand years prior to this, that crucifixion was explained in detail. Now the Jews would normally stone somebody to death, where they would put them kind of in a, a pit or a quarry, and they would hurl rocks uh, and you know, hit the person probably in the head and, and kill them. So this is important because the Jews could not put him to death, the Jewish leadership. It had to be done through the Roman government, and that's where crucifixion comes in. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself on this, or did others tell you this about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. I don't know, I've only heard this in maybe one or two sources, but apparently there was a Roman guard, you know, you got to protect the governor. So he had his, his, his cohort there in the praetorium, and they had to protect Pilate because he was a man with power and a lot of people were trying to kill him. So there was a, an annals or a, a, a you know, a a diary of this, this Roman soldier called Longinus. And he saw that most of the prisoners would grovel in front of Pilate. They would go down and almost worship him, get down on all fours and, and, and grab his feet and kiss his feet and beg him, please don't kill me. Because crucifixion was a horrible death. So this soldier sees this, and this is one of the reasons why Pavel, or 
Pilate marvels. In one of the scriptures, Jesus says, you would have no power over me unless it was from above. Now, here's Jesus bound, probably bruised, beating, uh, bleeding, and he's before the governor, and he's speaking as if he has control over the governor. Very impressive. So uh, Pilate marvels, and then the soldier, apparently all the way out to the crucifixion site, and he, he keeps from the praetorium to, the, to Golgotha, he's observing Jesus, he's blown away by him, and he becomes a believer, this soldier. And he might have even been the one who said, truly, this is the Son of God when he was being crucified. But Jesus exuded a confidence, not an arrogance, but a confidence, knowing he was fully in control over this whole situation. Very impressive. Now, in verse 20, or in Luke 23, Pilate realizes that Jesus is part of Herod's jurisdiction. I love the people who say, well, the Bible was made up. It's fairy tales. There's so much intricacy. See, if you're going to lie, you don't give details. Why? Because when somebody catches you in a lie, you, you want to be able to disavow whatever you said or say, well, I meant it this way. Liars try not to give details. The scripture is filled with so much detail, so much jurisdiction, so much history that, you know, it's, 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 it's a perfect piece of history, sometimes more in detail than, than secular history. But there was a jurisdictional issue because Herod Antipas, who was the one who killed John the Baptist, had jurisdiction over things that happened in Galilee. So when, when uh, Pilate hears that Herod's in town for the feast as well, he's excited because he wants to get rid of this political football. So he pushes him off to uh, Herod, probably relieved that the headache was over, but unfortunately for him, Jesus comes back. So in Luke 23, Herod's excited now. King Herod is excited to see Jesus because he was always hoping that he could see Jesus do a miracle. But when Jesus wouldn't perform and do tricks for him, he got angry, mocked Christ, and sent them back to Pilate. So the second person that I want to look at is Herod. Herod is a signs and wonders guy. Now, his attitude might have been, well, Jesus, if you do something, turn this uh, you know, grasshopper into a snake or something, I'll really believe. Or you know, do something that I can see that you are who you say you are. Jesus refused to perform. And God doesn't perform for us. But Herod is a picture of the world. If I can't see it, I won't believe it. Again, God isn't going to perform for us. Now, there are some in your life that you may deal with, maybe you're one of them, who your attitude is, God, reveal yourself to me, otherwise I won't believe. Or if you're really real, strike me down. <laughs> right? Now, I've had this, um, I had permission to use this account, which is a, a fun account, but um, a believer in our church was dealing with another person and he started becoming insolent towards God. He started mocking God. And he said, if you're real, strike me down. And he started saying just profanity and blasphemous things. So she came to me, and she was angry. And I smiled, and I said, this is what years in the Lord will do for you. I said, this would have been my approach. I would have watched him go into his tirade, say his things, and I probably would have smirked at him and said, wow, you're not a pile of ashes right now. Son, come over here, sit down with me. Let me explain the concept of grace to you because it's something that you just received. Can you imagine if God struck down every person who was blasphemous? There'd be a lot less people in the world. Now remember, I didn't grow up as a believer, so I might not be here either. So I'm thankful that I'm not a pile of ashes right now. But God doesn't call us to be like Herod. And the truth is that in his word, he says, if you seek me, anyone with all your heart you'll be found by me now some complain and say but i did seek him and then when i listen to the story i say you know what you didn't seek him with all your heart 
God wants to make sure that if he's going he's to build this relationship with you, that you're really interested in him. You know, that you're, it's your, your desire to be in a relationship with him. So he wants us to seek him, Jeremiah 29 says, with all of our heart. Verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had delivered him. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all of the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. Wow, that's a scary thing to say. Even as a believer, and I, if I was assured of something, I wouldn't say on my son's life, or, you know, that's just, you know, it's just insanity. But in Luke 23, Pontius Pilate tries to appease them. In Luke 23, Luke adds that he says, I'll chastise him, I'll scourge him. I'll have him beat up by the soldiers for a while, and then I'm going to release him. And this is after he comes back from Herod. So this is the third Roman trial. So it goes from Pilate to Herod, back to Pilate again. He's stuck with him again. Now, Barabbas, I'm going to save uh, Pontius Pilate for last. But Barabbas is the third person that I want to look at here. In Mark's gospel, he gives us a little bit more information. He tells us that Barabbas is an insurrectionist and a murderer. From a Roman perspective, he was probably a terrorist. So we would understand that in our vernacular, the guy's a terrorist, according to the Roman government. Insurrection, right? to fight against the government, to fight against authority, and a murderer. So we can surmise that he was killing Roman soldiers. He was a zealot, probably. There was a group called the Zealots back then. So Pilate's plan backfired. He probably thought, well, I'm going to say to the people, do you want, can I just release Jesus? Or here's this guy, Barabbas. Look at him. He's scary looking. He kills people. Man, you don't want him out in your neighborhood with your kids playing. So he probably thought, well, they're going to go with Jesus. Well, this maybe was a nationalistic crowd, and they, were, they didn't like the Romans, so they were like, we'll take, give us Barabbas. You know, you can have Jesus crucify him. So understand a little bit of the background here. Now, ironically, one of the versions gives Barabbas' full name. Did you know that his full name was Jesus Barabbas? Makes it more interesting, doesn't it? Jesus Barabbas and Jesus Christ, a tale of two Jesuses. That's what we have here. Both of them had a first name that meant salvation. But Barabbas, in addition, has a second name, his last name, which literally means son of the father. We can, again, start putting pieces together. Well, who named them? Well, his parents. So maybe we can say that his first name, which was really um, a form of the name Joshua from the Old Testament, right? 
or Yehoshua, which means God is salvation. So that's his first name, this little boy that they have, and he grows up, and his last name is Son of the Father. Again, I'm not sure how the names were put, and, but I, we can only surmise that his parents did that. Now, probably he grew up in a, an upbringing of a religious Jewish home. Uh, probably the, he read the Torah when he was younger. Probably he went to the synagogue. So we can put some things together here. However, he didn't want to do it God's way. He did it his own way. At some point in his life, he decided, God's taking too long. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And God will be pleased with me because I'm killing these filthy Romans who are holding us under oppression. So you've got you to look at how this starts to happen here. And really... There are some today who are still trying to do it their way. There are some today who are unbelievers, who are trying to do it their way, living a self-directed life, making their own reality, making their own salvation. And I, ha- I hate to say it, but there are also believers who are also doing it their own way. You know, we, we come to church, we pray, we read the Bible, we might be part of the Christian community, but God is taking too long. And again, we can look at these characters like Judas, what a bad man he was. Barabbas, he's a bad man. I didn't kill anybody, and and I didn't do the things he did. But we can still take an application and apply it to our lives. And some of us, some of us are angry because we're unfulfilled. But the truth is, we're not doing it God's way. That anger comes out at God. However, we've prioritized everything over the things of the Lord. And what can we expect? I'm unfulfilled. I'm exhausted. I'm at the end of my rope. But if you sit down and talk to the person, you realize that they are not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Because I've been there, and I'm still there. When I run ahead of God, I find myself in trouble. And I realize I can't do this by myself. I need him. I need the help of the Holy Spirit. But there's two things here. If we uh, don't want to do it his way, okay, we will struggle. But let me tell you something else. Even when you can say, I have financial problems, I have uh, relationship problems, I have other problems. When we're doing it his way, we find that we can go through it easier. We find ourselves walking and all these things are happening and they're coming, they're salting from different angles. And you get through the trial and you look back and you go, how did I do that? I sought first the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not going to stand here and promise you that when you seek God first, all your problems disappear. I would be a liar, and you need to replace me if I do that. That's not going to happen. Your problems will still be there, but you'll find that someone is carrying you through it. Right? And that's the way I want to be. I don't expect that in the future, right now, that I'm not going to have any problems. But if I'm double-minded and I'm not putting God first, it's just going to be difficult. Don't expect to look any different from your unsaved friends and family who are struggling, and you're struggling, and you're in the same boat. Now you start to become carnal like them because you're not seeking first the kingdom of God. Heather's doing a a study in James with the ladies, and double-mindedness is going to come up in chapter 1, and probably has come up in some respects in the next few weeks. Are we double-minded? We really like the whole salvation thing. We really like our church family. But you know what? I really want everything also that the world has too. And you keep flipping back and forth. And the Bible says that type of person is very unstable 
And James says specifically, don't think you'll receive anything from the Lord. He doesn't like that. Right? And again, it's, it's something that all of us probably have at least some element in, in our lives that we need to look at. Jesus Barabbas, he was the people's choice. Give us Barabbas. Hey, Barabbas, let's have a party. When are you going to kill your next Roman soldier? But Jesus Christ was God's choice. And as we go through 1 Samuel on Wednesday nights, we can see the difference between King Saul and David. King Saul didn't want God in his life. He wanted to do it his way. David always sought the Lord. And there's a big difference in the paths that they take. But again, we can look at this and say, hope my way or hope God's way. Jesus Barabbas was a revolutionary. What are we doing today to walk in his footsteps that we need to not do? Verse 18, it says, because of envy, they delivered him. Mark's gospel tells us that the religious leaders stirred up the crowds, mob mentality. In verse 22, they were saying, crucify him. Well, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you'll know that it wasn't long ago that they were hailing him as the Messiah. You see the fickleness of the crowds, right? Where were the ones waving the palm branches? Where were the ones putting their garments down on the ground while the, the donkey walked over it? Where are these people? There's a saying that evil pre- prevails for the simple reason that good men do nothing. And I would add good men say nothing. It also shows why a leader can't capitulate to the crowd, because the crowd will turn on you one day anyway. The popular politician one day is next year someone that everybody hates. The popular celebrity one day next year is the celebrity everyone's gossiping about. So this, this is the way the crowd is. You can even see the difference between in our country. We are a republic. We're not a true democracy. A true democracy is if I'm a farmer and I have a plot of land and the government wants my land, and I don't want to sell it to him. Remember the whole eminent domain thing? Uh, Democracy is where, okay, everybody gets a vote, Joe, and you're one of those votes, and we're going to outvote you. That's true democracy, mob mentality. You have to be careful with that, especially in this country, because we're leading towards that. Because the majority always wins, and the minority always loses in a true democracy. A republic is more of a representative government. But this, this gets more problematic in ministry to capitulate to the desires of those that you're ministering to. How many pastors, how many ministries have we seen that are starting to preach? They start with um, going, trying to tickle the ears, like the Bible says, of the hearers, and they start going down a path, and before you know it, they've gone apostate. It's a problem. can't have it. Even today, there's a lot of opinions, a lot of shouting, a lot of mob mentality. But we need to have our voice heard as well. I believe we need to, to man to our, representative, our representatives. But most importantly, we need to lift up our voices and have God hear us. Because that's where the real action starts. Sometimes we get so politically motivated that we forget about God. And that's a problem as well. The Bible tells us in Second Chronicles 7.14, and I'm going to par- paraphrase, that God acts after we start repenting. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, that's the first step. So when that happens, when the people of God, when we humble ourselves and get right with the Lord and we start to pray and he hears our voices, he's moved to action. He's moved to action. So the fourth personality we're going to look at here is Pontius Pilate. Now, a little bit of history here is we want to take notice of, if you read about him, we find that he was a harsh man. 
there were three major incidents before this trial where he actually taunted and he uh, goaded the Jewish leaders because he didn't like them. So he did things to really kind of start a fight with them. Apparently he was chastised by Rome and said, listen, you know, if you're going to lead that area, you need to be a little bit more diplomatic. Uh, we're, we're getting some complaints about you. So understand a little bit of the background of Pontius Pilate. Uh, he lived in Caesarea, but he was now in Jerusalem. Why? Probably the same reason why Herod was hanging out there, uh, because they were dignitaries, and the Passover feast was there. And as any governor today or politician, they usually try to make their appearances at these events. Right? They have to show their faces. So here's your background. Some actually denied the existence of Pontius Pilate, even though historians Philo, Tacitus, and Joseph wrote about him extensively. They denied Pontius Pilate until 1961 when the Caesarea stone was found. And then the world was like, okay, I guess this guy really did exist. Uh, but it wasn't good enough that the Bible said it. It wasn't good enough historical sources. They had to find this stone in 61 to finally say, okay, let's put him in the history books of today. So there's your background with uh, Pontius Pilate. Now, this custom... Uh, at the feast of releasing a prisoner was probably some sort of amnesty program that Pilate did maybe to maybe resurrect his image a little bit. So he says, I'll I'll release one prisoner to you at the feast. Uh, But the problem is he needs to save his own skin and his own position. He's on notice. This could go really bad for him. He sees it starting to turn out to a tumult, a riot situation. There might be bloodshed from his soldiers. That's a problem. So he bowed to external pressure, and he made the wrong decisions. Brothers and sisters, have we ever, I know I have, have we ever, maybe through our peers or through others as professionals in our professional group, have we ever bowed to public pressure and made the wrong decision? Yes, we have. Have we done it to God? Yes, we have. Again, Pontius Pilate, again, we can look at the scripture, Uh, Pastor Joe, you gave us four examples of some really bad dudes in the scripture. I'm glad I'm not like them, but we are like them in some ways. But the beauty is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. So who is really on trial? I ask that question again. We'll come back to it in the end. Pontius Pilate. He had no control over the situation, not the Jewish leaders, the crowd, the course of the trial, or his own soldiers, as we'll see in the next chapter or in the next half of the chapter. In contrast, Jesus appeared to have no control, but he was in complete control. See, this is amazing when we study the scripture. It's so, it's so upside down. I just saw somebody say, wow, yeah, right? It, everything is upside down. The Bible is very clear. If we, if we raise ourselves and we achieve the highest heights and we're really high on ourselves, God's like, uh-uh, I can't use you. You're full of yourself. You need to be humbled. Jesus, when he washed the feet of his disciples, you know, Peter said it with his voice, but the other ones were probably reeling back saying, Master, why are you washing our feet? That's disgusting. There's a servant over there. They can do that. Jesus said, you can have no part of me unless you're a servant, unless you let me do these things. So what we think in the world, God sees usually everything flipped. And it's only when we're in the spirit do we see the truth of these events. So Christ, it looked like he was out of control. They were beating him up. They were throwing him around. He didn't get any sleep. They probably didn't give him anything to drink. But you know what? He was in complete control, I submit to you, because he died for our sins. 
It's important to look at. He could have said, he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. He could have said, you know what? These people are disloyal. Even the closest ones to me on the earth, they all disappeared. I don't want to do this. But he loved us so much that he went through with it. It's important to understand. Now, what do we learn about Pontius Pilate? Again, he tried to save his own skin. And we see even in society, and it's sad, a lot of self-centeredness. Right? A lot of self-centeredness. And we need to be different as people of faith. Verse 26. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Of course, to mock him. And the scourging was a a procedure where they would take these whips, and in the leather, long leather thongs, they would embed pieces of metal uh, and, and pieces of bone and sharp things. It was really cruel. And they would cause their victims to, uh, uh, they would tie them to a post and spread their backs out. And they would whip their backs. And with the skin stretched, every whip would just tear the flesh open. So all the flesh was being torn open, bleeding. Uh, probably the nerves felt like they were being seared as these things were coming down into, past his skin and into his flesh area. So this is what was going on. And a lot of times what they did was they try to do that to increase blood loss and hypovolemic shock so that when the uh, crucified victim was up there, uh, they couldn't push themselves up anymore to get a breath. And because of the blood loss and the, you know, the hypovolemic shock, they would sink back into their position and they would suffocate to death. Very sick practice. I believe it started with the Persians and then it was perfected by the Romans. And, and a Roman citizen, by the way, could not be crucified because it was such a humiliating act that they wouldn't do that to their own citizens. Okay? So this is what's going on here. And again, Jesus went through all of this for me. And I just want to stop and say, thank you, Lord. <laughs> thank you, Lord. And I think sometimes we have to really read the scripture and understand the depths and the details to understand what he did for us. Right? Because I'll tell you the truth, I can't save myself. I can't even say from this point, Lord, I have it. From this point on, I'm good. I don't need you. I can't do that. That's crazy, you know? It's a suicide mission. But the truth is that John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, me, you, all of us, right, would, would believe, would not perish, but have eternal life. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, verse 17, but that through him the world might be saved. Thank you, Lord, for that. Verse 29, last few verses. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. Then when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. We go all the way back to Genesis, we'll see that after the curse, after the fall, that thorns were going to grow up from the ground, weeds and thorns. So the beautiful Garden of Eden, those Edenic qualities were now gone. Man would have to work by the sweat of his brow to bring up vegetation and constantly deal with weeds and pestilences, but thorns, how appropriate, how interesting. These soldiers had no idea what they were doing. They had no idea who they were abusing. But they took the thorns, which were a result of man's sins, and they jammed it into his head. 
So symbolically, of course, Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins, but the thorns are also a good indication of why we're here in the first place, why he was there in the first place. So in closing, we can look at this. Everyone took turns trying Jesus. Religious leaders, the Roman government, and what was the outcome? Well, let's start with Judas. He said, quote, I have betrayed innocent blood. The religious leaders had to make up charges, put false charges on him to finally get rid of him. Three, Pontius Pilate said, I find no fault in this man at all, but was too weak to stop his murder. Four, Pontius Pilate's wife said, have nothing to do with this just man. So how did he end up on the cross? I submit to you, it's love. Love brought Jesus to the cross for you and for I, for me. So the truth is, Jesus really wasn't on trial. From God's perspective, he had to die this substitutionary death so that we could have eternal life. The truth is, the world is really on trial with what it's going to do with Jesus. And from God's perspective, you and I are on trial. I've made my decision. I finally stopped running. I finally um, turned from my self-directed life, and I turned to Christ as my Lord and Savior. Now it's your choice. How many of you still haven't done that? Today is the day of salvation. It's offered to you today freely, without charge. You couldn't pay for it. You couldn't earn it. It's just given free. We see that Judas was a quitter. Herod was looking for God to do signs and wonders for him. Uh, Jesus Barabbas, God was taking too long and he did it his way. And Pontius Pilate was all about self-preservation. I submit to you that they were on trial. And again, so are we. In Acts 17, in response to uh, the Apostle Paul's powerful plea plea, uh, regarding Jesus, some said, I'm not interested, flat out, not interested. Others procrastinated and said, we'll hear you again on this matter. Yet others said, as Joshua in the Old Testament, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What is your decision? Let's pray.